It's been two weeks since we were last in our Outlaw series in the book of Galatians. So if you bear with me, let me just for a moment recap a little of where we are. The Apostle Paul is in the midst of his second missionary journey. This has taken him back through a region known as Galatia, has taken him to the far western side of Turkey. Paul's unsure where to go next, and so in a a moment of prayer, uh, there is a, a vision, a Macedonian, this call. So the Apostle Paul does something very radical, something that changed the course of human history. He got on a boat, and he crossed continents. He landed in Europe, in Greece, the gospel began to spread like wildfire. Now, we don't know exactly where Paul was when he received a disturbing report, whether it was in Corinth or soon uh, after he had arrived in Athens, but he receives a report, a report nonetheless of a disturbing development that's occurred in these churches in Galatia that he had planted, that he had mentored, that he's visited twice. This report is that a group had come into the church preaching a distorted gospel, a gospel distorted from from grace, period. And that is really what the essence of the gospel message communicates. That it's grace and grace alone. God's unmerited favor demonstrated through Jesus' work on the cross, that God's favor is not to be earned, that God's favor is not to even be maintained, but God's favor is simply to be received and faith and enjoyed. And yet these false brethren were coming into these churches peddling a distortion, three different distortions. First, they were adding to grace works. We might call this the grace and do these things distortion. Grace and what you do. Yes, you're saved by grace, but still you have to maintain that grace. Yes, you've been given God's favor, but there are things you need to do to continue it, to grow it, to develop it, to foster it. Grace and fill in the blank, do these things. There was another distortion. Grace, but don't do these things. The cry of the legalist. You're saved by grace. You're sanctified by grace. But the mark of true maturity is when you are no longer doing certain things. Grace, but don't do these things. And if you don't do these things, your relationship with, with Jesus will deepen. It, it'll, it'll, it'll mature. Grace and do these things. Grace, but don't do these, these things. Or third, which is still a distortion, though it's different, is grace so I can do anything. And there are many who see grace as a ticket as a license, as the freedom to sin, as the freedom to do as they please, as the freedom to ultimately remain in control of their own lives. And yet Paul explains that this blows his mind. He says, I marvel, I marvel, I'm shocked that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And he calls it not another He calls it a perversion. And Paul's passionate about this topic. And the last time we were together, we explained why. Paul was so passionate about the liberty and the freedom and even the radical nature of grace and grace alone because it had saved him. It had set him free. It it had changed his life. He says in verse 13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. Note, former conduct, a former life how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to distort it. And we noted that what changed Paul's life, what transformed his present life in Judaism and religion into a former existence was not knowing more about God's grace. It wasn't correct theology. You can make the case that Paul understood What grace and grace alone, this grace period theology was really communicating, which is why in his religious zeal, he fought so passionately against it. What changed Paul's life was not knowing more about grace. What changed his life was when he experienced God's grace. The moment he met Jesus, he says that grace was demonstrated to him through the revelation, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus. It had been God's grace demonstrated 
to Paul and that he could now have a relationship with Jesus, it, it was that that had freed him from his miserable former life and religion. It was God's grace that had liberated him from the guilt of past mistakes. It was God's grace that was now filling his life with meaning and purpose, satisfaction. For many of us, we are still carrying the guilt of former sin for one reason and one reason alone. We don't understand grace and we haven't experienced it in a very practical and real way. Keep in mind, and this is essential to our understanding of Galatians, is that this transformation occurred in Paul's life, not in religion, not in what he was doing, not in the sacrifices he was making, but his life was transformed the moment on that road to Damascus, he met Jesus, grace. And you know, his life continued to change each and every day that he showed how worthy he was of it. No, that his life continued to be transformed by all the sacrifices he made. No, it was changed the moment he met Jesus and it continued to change, was continued to be transformed each and every day he walked with Jesus. Grace is more than an idea to know. Grace is a relationship to be experienced. We know grace when we know Jesus. And yet the truth is that many people haven't fully experienced grace because while they know about Jesus, they don't actually know Jesus. There are many people whose relationship with Jesus is about as intimate as Facebook stalking someone. I mean, yes, technically you're friends, right? Because you sent them a friend request and they, they accepted it. Now you've never met the person, but you're just trolling the internet and you think this Jesus person, that seems pretty cool. I wanna check him out. And because Jesus's page is public, he's not hiding anything you're more than welcome to become friends. And not only that, but man, you can start to become friends with all his friends. You can even see which friends of his are actually friends of yours. It's, it's quite amazing. And not only that, but, but you can learn a lot about Jesus that way. Like you can read about his status updates, what he had for dinner, because that's really what most of Facebook contains where he is at this time, where he is at that time. Like, I mean, you can troll Jesus, you can stalk Jesus, you can learn a lot about Jesus. You can see the pictures too. Yeah, you weren't invited to the church pool party, but you can check it out. Which by the way, that makes you a creep, not just a stalker. My point is, is that you can learn a lot about Jesus. You can technically say, I'm friends with Jesus and I roll with a lot of people that are also friends with Jesus. I know what he thinks, I know what he says. But the reality is, is you're stalking him. You're not actually in a relationship with him. If it's purely limited to like superficial Facebook, that's weird. You see, the reality is you can never, ever, 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 ever replace intimacy with information. And the truth is that a lot of people know a lot about Jesus. They've compiled a lot of information about Jesus. They've come to church every Sunday since they were a kid and they know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Why? Because they don't have a relationship with him. It hasn't moved beyond the information realm. You're just a stalker. I have found that grace is often distorted in our lives in the subtlest of ways. And I'm gonna do this because I think it's important for us to bring some of these concepts home in a very personal way. This grace and distortion, grace but distortion, grace so distortion. In a practical sense, how is it that in our lives, 
We distort grace. You know, I found that it first happens in this way. It happens when a believer, a Christian, a person begins basing the existence of their relationship with Jesus on a list of things they've either done or presently doing. It's an easy way to find out if someone really knows the gospel or they don't know the gospel. Just ask them this question. Hey, do you know Jesus? And their answer will be absolutely, yes, I do. Well, well how, how do you know Jesus? Well, I prayed a prayer. I prayed this prayer. I, I walked down an aisle. I was baptized. Do you know Jesus? Oh yeah, I've got a Bible. I got 14 of them. I even read it once in a while. Are you, do you know Jesus? Dude, I, I wake up every morning early and I have a, a personal devotion. I've got one of those books, you know, and I read a little verse and a cool thought and I roll with it. Do you know Jesus? Yeah, I, I, I pray before my meals and before I go to bed, I give to a charity or I attend such and such a church. Have you ever found that to be the case? Hey, are you a Christian? Do you follow Jesus? Yeah, I go to First Baptist. <laughs> that wasn't actually my question. That's cool that you go there, but that, that's not the answer. Hey, are you a Christian? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Oh, absolutely. I teach Sunday school. Do you notice the distortion there? We often distort grace in another way. Instead of basing the existence of our relationship with Jesus on something we, we either done or presently doing, we then base the health of our relationship or our walk with Jesus on what we aren't doing, right? Like the easiest way you can pick out this gospel distortion is to ask this question, how's your walk with Jesus? And their reply goes something like this, awesome, man, I stopped drinking or I quit smoking. I, I, my relationship with Jesus is just rocking. It's real. I've stopped hanging out with my party friends or I, I've stopped cussing. I stopped sleeping with my boyfriend or a girlfriend. Hey, how's my relationship with Jesus? It's going great. I no longer watch R-rated movies or I, I don't watch HBO. I've, I've given up listening to secular music. Hey, how's your relationship with Jesus? Dude, it's awesome. Like I, I've kicked my porn habit down to like one viewing a week. I mean, we're really rocking, me and Jesus. Like, do you, do you notice how easy it is to fall into either of these two traps, but how distorted it is nonetheless? You see, without even realizing it, many people fall into this subtle trap of basing their Christian experience, their Christian life on a grace and or grace but distortion, which is really silly because a relationship with a person, specifically the person of Jesus, fundamentally has zero to do with the things you are or aren't doing for him. Like imagine, imagine this, because no relationship works this way. If I were to ask you, hey, how are you and your wife doing? And you're gonna immediately point to what you're doing for her or not doing for her as the justification, things get weird. For example, yeah, we're doing really, really well. I've committed to coming home at night. I've started paying bills, so there's a roof over her head. I mean, we're, I mean, it's, it's, I gave her money to buy a new outfit. Oh man, my wife, our, our marriage is going great. I've stopped beating her. Like I gave up, I gave up my girlfriend on the side, my gumar, you know, like I, I gave up, I gave up the girl. It's, it's because I really love my wife, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm demonstrating it. Or, you know, our relationship is really going awesome. I've stopped gambling away the grocery money on DraftKings, you know. Like, we're really, you know. Like, that's just ridiculous. Like, that's not how relationships operate. You see, sadly, the reason people fall into these type of gospel distortions is because they've bought into the religious trap that transforming their behavior through the things they do or the sacrifices they make for Jesus will somehow enable them to grow closer to Jesus. You see, the truth of the gospel of grace, period, the one Paul is so passionately defending, it presents for us the exact opposite when it comes to a relationship. 
the only way I can grow closer to Jesus is by growing closer to Jesus. The only way my life is transformed is by growing closer to Jesus. You see, the reality is we often want to deal with the vertical life to address the the horizontal, to address the vertical, when the truth of the gospel is that it's the vertical relationship that then demands and impacts every aspect of the horizontal. Remember, the Christian experience and our behavioral transformation has nothing, zero, zil, zil, zitch, none. (laughs) Has nothing to do with what you do or what you don't do. Transformation is completely based on who you know. It's not what you do. It's not what you don't do. It's who you know. That is the gospel of grace, period. Paul's opening is clear that his religious zeal, his obedience to the law, the grace and and grace but moral structure had only served to blind him to the reality of who he actually thought he was, someone pleasing God as opposed to who he actually was someone opposing God and killing people in the process. The result of religion is that we're nothing more than an enemy of God and a jerk. Now that was the longest intro in history, so we'll get to verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now pause for a moment. In order to understand what Paul's describing in these two verses, please note what God had already done and now what God was determined to do when it came to Paul's life. First, according to the verb tense, it's clear that God had, there's a past tense element, had already separated him from his mother's womb. This this word separated means to mark off with boundaries, to appoint. And God had already called Paul through his grace. Called means to invite by name. It's personal in nature. Now, though Paul has already described his former conduct in Judaism, it would appear that he skips over his conversion simply by stating that from conception, God had a plan for his life and that on the road to Damascus, God called him, God changed him, God transformed the former into the new only as a result of his grace. And it would appear that the reason Paul would do this is that they were already familiar with his conversion story. He mentions, you know of my former life. There's no reason I recount conversion. I just want to let you know what God was doing, what he was up to. Now note this word through, it's significant. Through his grace, this word means the reason by which something is or isn't done. Paul is affirming that it was grace and not Judaism that changed the present into the former. That it was God's grace that changed his life not the law. Now Paul transitions to the very thing that God was wanting to do and in through his life. What he had done, now what he wanted to do. And let's unpack this. Paul writes, look at it. It pleased God, or or literally, when God was ready. So there was this former life in Judaism, this conversion, this call, this experience with grace. But then when it pleased God, when God was ready to reveal or or to disclose what was before unknown. Paul was known as a hater, and now he's gonna be a proponent of what? Of his son in me. For what purpose? The work that God had done in his life, for what purpose did God want to reveal this to the world, to people? Well, he answers his question, that, or in order that, I might preach him, or herald Jesus, among whom? the Gentiles. See, Paul's explaining, yes, what God had done, how God had done it, but why God had done it, his plan for Paul's life. And according to Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 18, Paul knew this almost immediately, for it had been a prophetic word 
Paul gets knocked off his high horse, onto his butt. Jesus, why are you persecuting me? I don't know. You're blind. Go to Damascus. Wait. Three days. He either eats nor drinks. And while all that's happening, God appears to Ananias and says, hey, Saul, he's one of mine now. I need you to go. Represent me. Bring a word. Uh, Excuse me, who was that again? Yeah, you know the guy that came to kill you? I changed the plan. He's not going to kill you. You need to go restore him. Why? Because he's my chosen vessel, mine, to bear my name before Gentiles. Right from the beginning, Ananias knew and Paul knew what God's call had been. Now, Now look at it. Paul recounts his response to this unexpected revelation. I did not immediately upon finding this out, confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Like Paul is basically telling his Galatian audience that the grace of God was as freeing as the plan of God was confounding. Like God's plan was to use Paul, who keep in mind, zealous for the law, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of of, of the, the tribe and stock of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. I mean, Paul is the number one Jewish scholar in the world. And yet God chose him, picked him, saved him to now do what? To preach Jesus to the Gentiles. A totally different group of people. Like this is bizarre and it's confounding. Which explains, and Paul documents this, that upon receiving this news and how weird it was, how he had to chew on it, he spends a few days with the the disciples in Damascus. We know that from the book of Acts. And then he retreats into Arabia. He goes out into the wilderness, the desert. I got to wrap my brain around what God's doing in my life. So he gets away, he retreats, he departs to Arabia for approximately three years. Now, most scholars believe it's during these three years that Jesus appears to Paul and presents him this gospel revelation, this message. Keep in mind, and telling his audience that I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. The grace of God was extended towards me the mercy of God and the fact that God didn't kill me on the road to Damascus, the grace of God in the sense that he has a plan for me. He didn't kill me and he wants to give me life. Mercy and grace from God, it blew my mind. And not only that, but now I find out that the reason that God didn't kill me and has a plan for me is he wants me to go preach to the Gentiles and I needed three years to just figure that out. So I get out of town, I get out of Dodge, I get alone. Me and Jesus powwow. I did not confer with flesh and blood. I didn't go to the apostles who were in Jerusalem. You see, Paul is hammering home the point that it had been Jesus himself who not only had called him, who had not only appointed him, who had not only saved him, who had not only demonstrated grace to him, but was the one who taught him the gospel independent of any other Christian influences. Now, before we continue... I think it's important to point out that, you know, like often we deal with meaning and purpose, even as Christians. Like we struggle with, with, with what's the point? What's God's plan? What's next? Okay, I get it, Zach. Like genetically, God wired me. He made me before the foundations of the world. He knew me. I am the way that I am with the talents I have, the abilities I have, the idiosyncrasies I I have. I have all these things because God God wired them and he didn't just give them to me for uh, for no reason. And then because it was in a fallen state and I was using all these things for evil, I then was saved. Like he created me and then he redeemed me and these things don't happen in a vacuum. There's a plan, there's a point, there's a purpose. Understand something. Paul, you know, how Paul was able to find out what he was supposed to be doing with the life God gave him and redeemed for him to have. It was when he stopped trying to earn something that had been given, when he stopped trying to maintain something Jesus wanted him to enjoy, and when he took a step back, enjoyed grace, realized I don't have to earn anything, 
I don't deserve anything. It was in that moment of peace that God's plan for his life became clear. Sadly, many of you have a hard time with what God's plan is because you're still mired in religion. You're still stuck in the muck, the trapping of trying to earn or maintain something that God wants you to enjoy. And it's when you get to that point, that freeing point, that liberating point, I could do anything. Like, <laughs> wait a second. Now, God, what do you want me to do? And, and, and uh, let me go ahead and let you know, like you should be prepared that it will often defy anything you would have thought. Like Paul, no doubt, would have been like, oh, saved by Jesus, this is cool. I'm going back to the Jews. I'm equipped. I know them. No, 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 no. You're going to go to the Gentiles. When you find peace and contentment in Jesus, when you're connected into that relationship, it's then and only then that the plan begins to come into focus. Verse 18, Paul continues, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and I remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except, except James, the Lord's brother, his half brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. And Paul's point is like, you can validate, substantiate these talking to other people. Now after his conversion, these three years in Arabia and a very short time, after that, ministering in Damascus, which didn't end very well. They, Jews wanted to kill him, and he had to be uh, escaped an assassination plot by being let down in a basket over the wall of Damascus. He flees. Like, Paul starts ministry, and people just want to kill him. Like, I might not be the greatest pastor, but at least no one wants to kill me when I get done teaching a Bible study. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, anyway, but, but Paul is communicating to the Galatians that following all of this mess, when he came to peace with what God's call in his life was, the essence of the gospel, when Jesus had revealed it, when all these things had, had developed, he goes to Jerusalem to meet with Peter. Additionally, he says that during these 15 days, he didn't see any of the other apostles, but he did also confer with James, these men both being pillars in the church there in Jerusalem. And Paul's point, is that before he had gone out into Gentile communities, in essence, before Paul became known as Missionary Paul, before he had preached a message to the Gentiles, before he had preached a message to them, these Galatians, Paul is saying, Jesus taught me all this. Keep that in mind. I'm an apostle because Jesus commissioned me to be one. I am not one from man or an institution of man. God has called me. Jesus has sealed me. I'm rocking and rolling regardless of what anyone thinks of me. But, like for full disclosure, I still did go and I talked to Peter and I talked to James. I'm like, hey, this is what God did in my life. This is what he taught me. Are we cool with all this? And they're like, boom, two thumbs up, right? This is great. You're preaching what Jesus taught us. This gospel message is what Jesus had communicated to us. Your conversion, this is awesome. Now, keep in mind, that didn't happen uh, without reservation, right? Remember, no one wanted to meet with Paul at all, but it was a man named Barnabas, right? The son of encouragement that took the risk, took the chance and vouched for Paul that these things had happened in his life. Paul's making it clear that the apostles knew what God had done in his life and they had confirmed the gospel message that he had received by revelation from Jesus was legit because that was one of the applications, one of the applications, one of the uh, accusations that these false brethren, these false teachers in Galatia were leveling at Paul, that there was a divide between him and the apostles, that they had gotten their message directly from Jesus, but where had Paul gotten his? And so he's answering all these questions. He's diffusing all of these issues. Afterward, Verse 21, Paul says that he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only that he who had formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith, which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. According to Acts chapter 9, following these 15 days in Jerusalem, the 15 days he spends with Peter and James, Paul does attempt to go and to evangelize the Jews, which as his experience in Damascus ends up not working out very well. They also attempt to kill him. 
things kind of blow up. And so the, the apostles, the church of Jerusalem, decide that Paul was such a hot, a hot topic, a hot person, that he was uh, enraging so many people that they just, you know, we need some peace, some quiet. And they send him away. They send him to Tarsus, his hometown, in Cilicia. So what he's describing here, which he would stay making tents for approximately 10 years. And yet, according to Acts chapter 11, Barnabas, who had gone to this booming church in Antioch, which was in Syria, Paul mentions that, he, Barnabas had gone to this church, a revival was happening, he begins pastoring the people, but the needs are just, were so great that Barnabas is immediately like, I need help and I need it ASAP. I don't have time to send to Jerusalem to, to, you know, for them to send up some other guys. Like, I need a solution now. So we're told in Acts 11 that Barnabas goes to the neighboring town of Tarsus, there in Cilicia, and he like, he seeks out Paul everywhere. Like he's asking, he's posting flyers, wanted Paul, I need him. He's pulling out Craigslist ads like, in need of Paul, please respond. Here's my email address, text me. He ultimately finds Paul and is like, hey, I need you to come to Antioch. God's doing a work. I'm, I can't handle it. I need you to teach the people God's word. So sure enough, Paul is recruited by Barnabas. They go to Antioch. He begins to teach the people. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, and what we're going to do here is we're going to actually read 10 verses. We're not going to comment about everything within these verses. Uh, we're going to kind of leave some of it to next Sunday. There's a lot packed into here, especially as it transitions to another story that follows suit. And so we're going to kind of introduce the narrative, comment about a few things, answer a few questions, but probably leave the heavy lifting, the nitty gritty to next Sunday. But after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, which explains now how Barnabas is back in the picture. I also took Titus with me and I went up by revelation, communicated to them that gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul's not there to cause a stir. He's there to deal with an issue. Yet, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this all occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Thanks for all that, Paul. But on the contrary... When they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, the Gentile, had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised, the Jew, was to Peter. For he, speaking of Jesus, who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, the Jew, also worked effectively in me, Paul, towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jew, the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. Now, once again, next Sunday, we're going to unpack the text. We're going to look at some very important concepts about liberty and being, being brought back into bondage. But in order to get there, there is a question that has to be answered. Um, and I don't mean to bore you or to get too academic, but I think you'll understand why answering this particular question is so relevant to the application of this particular text. And, and the question is this, what trip to Jerusalem is Paul recounting in the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2? Like what trip to Jerusalem? Because in the book of Acts, we're given mention of several trips that Paul took to Jerusalem. So which one? Because that gives us the timing, it gives us some context to the story, what's really happening. Now there are two commonly held positions. Two commonly held positions that you're going to find good men on both ends 
of the position. For example, there's three guys that I listen to uh, every week in, in prep. Uh, three of my heroes, uh, David Guzik, Damian Kyle, and Joe Foch. Three guys, I'd exhort you, if, if, if you want just great Bible teaching and you're kind of sick of me, find their podcasts. They're wonderful. I listen to them. It won't offend me. They're better Bible teachers than I am. Uh, they've been doing it longer than I have. But even those three men, there's a divide in this particular question. And as much as it pains me, I completely disagree with David Guzik and find myself more in line with Damian Kyle and Joe Foch. Good company to have. Now, the two positions. First, Paul is recounting the events of his second trip to Jerusalem. This is the opinion. The second trip to Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 30, when the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem with a relief package, a financial relief package, to the believers in Jerusalem who were suffering both from persecution and a famine that had gripped most of Judea. Now understand, there's no record in Acts of what actually took place during their visit to Jerusalem. All we're told is that in Acts 12, 25, when they had fulfilled their ministry, Paul and Barnabas returned to Jerusalem and they bring with them John Mark and then they launch on their first missionary journey to Galatia. So someplace, what Paul is recording here as a, a narrative of what happened during this second journey recorded in Acts 11 that continues through Acts 12. Okay, the second opinion and what I'm more in line with, as you would understand in our prologue of Galatians, is that Paul is instead recounting actually a third trip to Jerusalem after his conversion recorded in Acts 15, which followed he and Barnabas' missionary journey to Galatia. And this was all initiated, why? Well, because a group of Jews had come from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, preaching what? This distorted gospel. The same group in Galatia had come to Antioch, which then resulted in what we historically know as the Jerusalem Council convened to deal with this particular issue. Now, why is this important? Why is the timing important? Today, as in Paul's time, there are those within Christianity who attempt to place qualifications on Christian liberty by doing this, by pointing to the very restrictions that the apostles laid out during the first Jerusalem council of Acts chapter 15. Like over and over and over again, you'll hear this very rationale used as the justification for the limitation of Christian liberty. You'll hear people say this, because the apostles instructed the Gentile believers in Acts 15 to lay aside certain liberties, you know, like abstaining from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things that were strangled, from the blood, dietary restrictions, so as not to offend, you know, Jewish brethren, if your actions as a Christian, as a believer, could potentially cause another Christian, another brother to stumble, well, you should abstain from such liberty. Like, in a sense, those who take such a position claim that while the grace Jesus provides does bestow the believer incredible freedom, the implementation and therefore enjoyment of these liberties are ultimately subject to the preference of the weakest believers among us. Here's the rub. If Paul is recounting in Acts 11, this experience, and is writing to the Galatians before the Jerusalem council of Acts 15, then this position gains a level of credibility. Why? Because it explains why Paul completely omits all of the things that they had recommended these Gentile believers do. Did you notice that was omitted from the first 10 verses? All Paul says is that in the end, we were given the right hand of fellowship and they were like, yo, just take care of the poor. And Paul's like, right on. That's what I want to do too. That seems consistent with Jesus. Nothing about things strangled, nothing about dietary restrictions, nothing about preferring a weaker brother, on and on and on. However, and this is where this gets contentious, 
If Paul is recounting the events of Acts 15 here in Galatians 2, and is therefore writing to the churches of Galatia after the ruling of the Jerusalem council, his obvious omission of the apostles' exhortation for the Gentile believers to abstain from these things eliminates now the biblical justification for the limitation of Christian liberty in order to prefer the weaker brother. You following me? I know this is kind of academic, but it's important. Now, before we continue, let me present the case as to why I think that there's no way Paul is referencing the events of Acts 11, like that we should remove that entirely, and is undoubtedly discussing the events of Acts 15, placing his letter to the Galatians sometimes after the Jerusalem council. Notice how Paul opens He says, look at it again. After 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Now this word again, it it can indicate a second trip. It can also indicate a third trip or a fourth trip or a fifth trip. All it eliminates is the first one. That's all it does. Can mean the second, but it can mean the third or the hundredth. Doesn't matter. Also note, that Paul says that Barnabas was his traveling companion, which really doesn't help us because he traveled with Paul in both instances, Acts 11 and 15. But Paul says that Titus also came along with him. Now, while Acts 11 specifically mentions only Paul and Barnabas, the account Luke provides in Acts 15 states something interesting. It says that Paul and Barnabas and certain others Christians, believers of the church of Antioch, should go to Jerusalem, which provides, it's not definitive proof that Titus was with them, but it provides room, more room in the third trip than it does for the second. It's also important to point out why Paul says he went to Jerusalem in the first place. And this is where we begin to hone in. Paul says, I went up, how? By revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. And why did he do any of this? This occurred because a false brother and secretly brought in blah, 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 blah. Once again, in Acts 11, it's very clear that Paul and Barnabas was sent. They were sent by the church in Antioch. For what purpose? To bring financial relief to the believers in Jerusalem. When in this instance of Acts, uh, of Acts 15 and subsequently Galatians 2, Paul says, I went by revelation. God told me I needed to go. Barnabas, Titus, let's roll. Jesus says we need to go deal with something. Now, yeah, it's, it's true. In theory, it could have happened in Acts 11 because we don't, we don't know what happened during that second trip. Luke doesn't give us any details of their time. But this whole concept that Paul was going because false brethren had been secretly brought in to spy out our liberty... Sounds very much like Acts 15, like Galatians 2, Acts 15 seem to to jive. Finally, and and this is what I would probably point to as the defining bit of evidence, (coughs) is the fact that Paul says that the trip occurred after 14 years. Now, we don't know after what. Was it after his conversion? Was it after uh, the revelation that he was supposed to uh, be uh, a heralder of the gospel to the Gentiles? Was it after meeting with Peter? Uh, and James, those 15 days, like after, doesn't really matter because he says 14 years, okay? So let's just say it was the beginning of his relationship with Jesus, his conversion on the road to Damascus as the possible earliest moment. Because we know historically that the famine recorded in Acts 11 actually hit the region of Judea in 45 AD. Like I'm not great at math, right? But 45 AD... 14 years back. That would place Galatians 2 in 31 AD. But we got a problem, right? Why? Because Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. And Joe Foch brings this up. He points out this, this historical fact that 14 years, we can't debate. But we know historically when the famine happened that caused the church to, to send relief. So there's no way in regards to the timeline, that Galatians 2 can be referring to Acts 11, but has to be pointing to Acts 15, and that's very important. 
in our prologue to Galatians, we noted that the limitation of liberty, the liberty that grace, period, affords, that the limitation of that liberty in order to maintain Christian unity was absolutely, categorically not what the apostles were communicating in Acts 15. And by omitting these things from his record, here in Galatians 2, Paul seems to be substantiating that point. It's only left to reason then that the apostles presented these suggestions because they were fundamentally concerned with a growing Gentile church there in Antioch, their ability to reach unbelieving Jews in specific areas. And we mentioned this, I'll repeat it, that the letter they wrote, the suggestions they laid out were written specifically to the churches of Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, and not to the churches that were now presently in Galatia. This was not a matter of maintaining Christian unity. Biblically speaking, we'll we'll recap it once again, the limitation of Christian liberty, biblically, should never, ever, 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 ever be a matter of maintaining unity within the church, but rather a concession a Christian makes in order to reach the lost. And when you understand that, it changes the entire argument. You go to 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about liberty and eating and drinking, place it in the context of the unbeliever and it makes so much sense. If I'm with a Gentile unbeliever and they lay this out on the plate, I'm eating it. If I'm with a Jewish unbeliever and it's a kosher thing, I'll eat it. It doesn't matter to me. Why? He says it at the end of the the whole text. I I want people to get saved. It's not about maintaining Christian unity. It's about reaching the lost. It's the only reason we should lay aside a liberty and as we'll get to next Sunday, and it's only when Jesus is the one telling us and not someone else. This is an issue to me, and it should be an issue to us, because there is a very vocal group of Christians who hold to the position that if a freedom afforded by grace offends a fellow believer, it is our duty to abstain from that particular liberty. Like I've even heard it asked when making this particular case, you might've heard it. Do you love your liberty more than you love your fellow brother? (laughs) Of course not. Like love reigns supreme. But the problem is, is love isn't the issue we're discussing. That's not the topic. You see, while this position is fraught with problems, I'll just give you a couple real quick. It's not biblical. Who's the arbitrator of such things? Where does the limitation of liberty end if the criteria of limiting liberty is not the Bible, but offending someone? You offend me, ladies, because you're not wearing a head covering. The Bible says you're supposed to. I'm offended. You need to be doing that. What? I'm making a biblical argument. I'm making a biblical case and I'm offended. And it's all about me. Hmm. Interesting. You see, not only is the position fraught with problems and making the accusation, do you not love a weaker brother? Like, do you love drinking alcohol more than you love a weaker brother? Like that, that, whole, that entire question is categorically unfair. Because I could ask this, are you so weak in the flesh that you would limit the liberty Jesus died on the cross to provide your fellow brother? What's more offensive? Limiting the work Jesus accomplished on the cross because you're too weak? Sadly, I have found that those who seek to restrict Christian liberty are rarely the weaker brother. But instead, are the legalists who's failed to experience the freeing nature of grace for themselves. Like Damian Kyle, he he said this, and I'm gonna bring up Damian Kyle so I don't, I'm not the only one getting in trouble for what I'm saying. You know, I gotta point to some other people, be like, I'm not pulling this out of the hat. Damian Kyle, he said to this point, he said, the one thing a legalist hates is free Christians. 
And I find that to be true. Like, for example, I've never had a brother struggling with alcohol, alcoholism, confront me concerning the enjoyment of my liberty to drink alcohol. I've never had a weaker brother bring that up. And, and on a side note, if, if he did, then I have no problems never drinking around that person ever again because, you know, I love you. And, like, it's just a beer. Who gives a crap? Like, I don't care. Like, I love you. But I've never had that happen. You know, the only people who have ever expressed a problem with me enjoying alcohol have instead been Christians who have never had a drop of alcohol? Doesn't that seem a little twisted and a little backwards? That the, like, that the motivation is maybe a little skewed? Is it, is it really the weaker brother that we're concerned with? Because you're not the weaker brother. You don't, you don't drink alcohol. You see, it often is a straw man argument given to restrict liberty. You know, as a youth pastor, I spent 10 years as a youth pastor. I never once had a young man come up to me and express a struggle with lust because of the outfits some of the young ladies in the church were wearing. I never had a 15-year-old be like, listen, the the lack of modesty in our youth group is really causing some some deep-rooted struggles in me. Like, I never had that happen. Instead, it was always older women whose type for Christian modesty was June Cleaver that had a problem with it. Like, not to say that, like, the modesty topic shouldn't be discussed, but it's never the weaker brother. It's the person who has an idea of what the standard should be. That, by the way, is not exactly biblical. Understand, while I don't believe, and I need to be clear, I do not believe the freedom that grace, period, affords should be a license for sin or even recklessness. That's not the position we're taking here. I do agree with what a dear friend of mine, Alan Riggs, said, once again, so he gets in trouble too, not just me, that, quote, our responsibility to not stumble others does not mean allowing an intolerant minority to hijack church culture. I find that to be so true. Friends, Christian liberty. Christian liberty is something we should all be willing to fight to maintain. Even if we don't enjoy that particular liberty. Think about it. Paul is fighting against what? The notion that Gentiles needed to be circumcised, right? Or even for that matter, needed to eat of the, the, you know, the dietary laws of Moses. The irony is that Paul probably like, lived according to the dietary laws of Moses and he was circumcised. Like he's defending the liberty of other people. Not just his own. He's defending other people's right to enjoy liberty. And this is something we should all do even if we don't enjoy that liberty or we lay aside that liberty for whatever reason. And this is why we should fight. This is why liberty, Christian liberty, grace, period, Liberty, why we should fight for it, why it should be a hill to die on, it's the fact that to limit things like this is to limit the result of the work of Jesus on the cross. Because when Jesus died, Jesus said, whom the Son has made free, he is free indeed. And next Sunday, we're going to see how this plays out. A very confrontational issue that arose with Paul and Peter.